all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fossone. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. We're going to start today with a interview with the leadership of the Hispanic Veterans Leadership Alliance. We've talked to them in the past, and we're going to get a little insight in what's been going on in HVLA. And since we're in Hispanic Heritage Month, it certainly seems appropriate. Then after the break, we'll come back and we'll get some more information from Captain Paul Ryan on the Michigan Military Veterans Hall of Honor that's coming up in November, where we're going to talk about some uh, specific military inductees into the hall. You'll find both of these really interesting, so stick around. We want to welcome back to Veterans Radio today representatives from the Hispanic Veterans Leadership Alliance. We have with us today retired Rear Admiral William Rodriguez and retired Brigadier General Ricardo Aponte. Gentlemen, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for inviting us. Well, let's uh, let's start with uh, the Rear Admiral uh, Will Rodriguez. Uh, real, give us uh, the thumbnail sketch of uh, how a nice kid like you ended up in uh, sp- spending uh, uh, what twenty, thirty years in in the uh, Navy. Almost thirty-two. Thanks, Jim. I, uh, in brief, uh, my father was a career Navy uh, Navy man, a graduate of the Naval Academy in '54. I was born in the Portsmouth Naval Hospital, uh, baptized on a Navy destroyer, Dad's uh, first ship. And um, so I was kind of destined to go in the Navy. Uh, I took an NROTC scholarship to the Citadel in the mid-70s and uh, was commissioned in 77. Uh, I spent five years as a surface warfare officer and then went to graduate school at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey and uh, switched over to become an engineering duty officer, worked in uh, the next 20 uh, the next 20 plus, 25 plus years. Hard to do the math, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And, and the naval electronics, uh, naval engineering, some shipbuilding time, uh, and, and a lot of time in program management of uh, command and control, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance systems. 
and I ended up retiring in 08 as the chief engineer of uh, Space Naval Warfare Systems Command and program exec- acting program executive officer for Enterprise Information Systems. And uh, then worked for uh, Naval Postgraduate School for four years doing research development and, uh, and whatnot. And uh, in 2014, my wife and I uh, left our wonderful daughter and our granddaughter and son-in-law in, in San Diego, and we uh, moved here to the mountains of western North Carolina in Flat Rock, North Carolina. Well, it's beautiful country. Uh, uh, Brigadier sure. General Ricardo Aponte, uh, how did a nice kid like you from uh, Puerto Rico end up spending all that time in the Air Force? Yes, for me it was uh, 34 and a half years at the University of Puerto Rico, Mayaguez campus, Astempo, and studied civil engineering. But uh, it was a Vietnam era and I decided that pilot training was in the future for me. So through an Air Force ROTC scholarship, I uh, entered pilot training in 1973 and graduated a year later. Uh, Lucky for me, I became a fighter pilot, and they assigned me to the F-111 in uh, Clovis, New Mexico. After several years and several active duty moves, I decided to leave the Air Force at the 16-year point and became an Air Force reservist. That took me all the way to 2007 when I retired as the uh, director of engineering in innovation at U.S. Southern Command as the J-7. We could spend time with both of you uh, in separate interviews, talking about your military career in the service to the country. But we have you on today specifically to talk about Hispanic Veterans Leadership Alliance. And let me set this up for our veteran radio listeners who maybe aren't, uh, don't have the statistics at the top of their fingers here, but uh, Hispanics make up about 18% of the population and about 17% of the uh, military but it drops pretty dramatically uh, after those two broad strokes. When you get down to Hispanic DOD civilian employees, it's only 8%. When you get to Hispanic officers in the military, it's only 8%. When you get down to Hispanic senior civil service executives, it falls down to 3.3%. And really, when you get into the rarefied era of generals and admirals, it's only 1% are, are of Hispanic descent. So there's a real need for the Hispanic Veterans Leadership Alliance to sort of uh, uh, do some education, get the word out, uh, and and focus on some uh, issues. And when we talked last, we talked about uh, some base renaming and maybe naming some bases after Hispanic heroes uh, that have served. But a lot's happened in the last year, and I guess I'll start uh, with you, uh, uh, Admiral Talk a little bit about uh, some reorganization and some things that have worked that has been going on at, at HVLA over the last year. Well, uh, thank you, Jim. Uh, I, I came to HVLA in, in uh, 2019 uh, uh, right after I made Admiral. The CNO asked me to get involved with the uh, Hispanic Affinity Group with the Navy Marine Corps Coast Guard called ONSO, the Association of Naval Services Officers. Uh, through that, that brought me uh, as president for eight years and brought me into uh, HVLA. Um, my focus 
whether it's a change or not, but my focus has been on, on mentoring career management and meritocracy. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's very difficult, as you mentioned, uh, to, to uh, bring uh, Americans of Hispanic descent up into the flag ranks, and general officer ranks. Uh, in 1981, the Secretary of the Navy, Eduardo Hidalgo at the time, uh, looked in his crystal ball and said, you know, in 40, 50 years, 60 years from now, we're going to have a country that's about 30% Hispanic, and we need to reflect the face of the nation in our senior officer ranks. And so, as you can surmise, uh, it takes a good 20, 25 years to grow an E1 to E9 or O1 to uh, you know, Admiral or General. And so it, it takes mentoring. It takes career management. And that's, uh, I believe, is what had, had been lacking in the past. And that's what uh, has been a focus, uh, in particular on the Navy side, which I'm very involved with, with uh, some uh, efforts that the Navy has been doing, focusing not just on recruiting, which is an issue, but primarily in the retention area. A lot of focus on retaining our talent, retaining our people, Retaining them past 20 years is at the 20-year mark. Uh, you know, people are, are jumping out, retiring, and getting good jobs on the outside world, and they're not uh, staying in so they can be looked at for captain or colonel or uh, admiral or general. And that's you know that 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 pool is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, and so that's that leads to part of the problem. In fact, that may be the primary leader of the problem. Uh, in, in our uh, issue that we don't have as many Hispanic uh, Americans of Hispanic descent in the flag officer ranks. Although I will say two years ago, uh, speaking of changes, uh, CNO Gil Day made a big effort to look really hard at uh, those uh, captains, uh, colonels, captains uh, at the you know, 06 level um, who were of Hispanic descent and uh, we had six promoted to flag officer ranks, which was just outstanding. Well, and really what's... That answers your question. It, no, it does. And part of what's happened, if, if again, you, you have to have this long view. You have to have this 20-year view. But certainly mm-hmm. over the last 20 years, corporate America has become um, a little better at recognizing, A, uh, hey, these veterans have a great skill set. And B, uh, diversity is good for our corporation. Both of those Absolutely. things, uh, both of those things combined means, geez, I ought to go cherry pick some, uh, some folks out of the military and bring them on Hispanic officers onto my team. Um, uh, General, uh, talk to us a little bit about, uh, again, the things that, uh, HVLA has been doing over the last year as it sort of focuses on this problem that uh, the admirals described for us? Yes, absolutely. We, uh, I, I became president of HVLA on 1 July of this year. And uh, with my presidency, I brought an idea that we need to uh, focus on the four pillars that uh, Admiral Rodriguez just mentioned, recruiting, retention, and meritocracy. We have to fit focus on them but because that's where the problem lies. The services are doing a pretty good job of recruiting. However, retention is a very, it's a failed area. Many of the uh, 
airmen and officers, as they look at their future at the five to ten year point, they look at their future, they look at the ceiling, the glass ceiling above them, and they don't see a Hispanic voice. Yeah. So they vote with their feet. Uh, this year, the Marine Corps did a great job recruiting Hispanics. I don't know if you know that 29% of all of their recruits were Hispanic for this fiscal year. This incredible number of uh, of uh, forces that we're adding. But in the Marines, for, for specifics, when they look up their senior NCOs and their senior officers, they don't see their faces or their last names. And that is something that HVLA is trying to to, uh, to fix. And what I've done is I started a growth, HVLA growing agenda. Just yesterday, we we added to our roles of general membership 10, 10 cadets of West Point. And we're planning to do that with ROTC cadets and cadets in the other service academies. We need to to get them informed so that they don't vote with their feet at the five or 10 year point as they're doing now because the companies that you mentioned, Jim, are hiring. And they're hiring top quality cadets, uh, top quality officers. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. The training that you're getting in the military and the opportunity to lead and learn how to lead and sometimes learn how to work with budgets and all kinds of other things um, really make you attractive in the in the corporate world. So it is a challenge on, on retention. That That's an incredible recruiting number for the Marines. And I do think it's a great idea of you, as you expand HVLA to include uh, young officers, cadets, uh, ROTC members, uh, because it gives them some network and some introduction to people who've made it and that they can look up to. Is uh, Talk a little bit uh, beyond expanding the membership, uh, if you will. I understand that uh, some uh, memorandums of understanding have been executed with a couple of organizations. Uh, will, you want to talk to us about that? Yes, you know, we, we have uh, a couple of years ago... Um, we, we at HVLA, we started a, uh, we, we created an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding with the Association of Naval Services Officers. So we have reached out to a, a proven organization that has a proven program of mentoring, career management, that sort of thing. And, uh, and through ONSO, uh, which has its, its tentacles, if you will, it's reaching out to the um, the Latin American Studies Group at the Naval Academy, those midshipmen who are of Hispanic descent belong there, to Los Compañeros up at the Coast Guard Academy. Uh, now, granted, also is just focused on the naval services, not, not the Army or the Air Force, but we are looking at, uh, looking at the possibility of growing uh, also to the other, other services. And then there's also uh, an MOU I believe, and, and, and uh, General Pompey, correct me if I'm wrong, with uh, a group called the Rocks. The Rocks is, is formed by the Army, um, focusing on minority uh, efforts as well. So, and we've are uh, working close with the Secretary of the Navy and a few other organizations. So we are reaching out uh, in, in that in that regard. 
Uh, oh, also, I forgot about also the American Veteran Leadership uh, Group, ALVA. Uh, we, we've also worked with them as well. Uh, um, Rico, talk a little bit about the importance of these alliances with other groups and and how, uh, under your presidency, you see this helping HVLA uh, evolve. We need to expand uh, our influence. It's the the first thing that needs to be done because leadership is, I've got to be honest, not listening to us. The mm-hmm. current of the Department of Defense is not listening. We have, we have an ally at the Personnel and Readiness uh, Office with uh, with uh, Gil Cisneros being there, but uh, it's not enough. We need to get leaders, generals and admirals, to demand action in the personnel people that make assignments possible. Promotable assignments, promotable upper education, and other things that are required in a successful career. Uh, we'll mention the ROCS. The ROCS is an African-American civic action group. They have extremely successful in promoting their personnel in the U.S. Army, and we're trying to emulate that. Uh, there is not one up-and-coming officer in the U.S. Army that doesn't get a mentor from the rocks. And that's what we need to do. And that's why we're growing, too, so that we can provide those mentors. Well, you're right. You have to have, for upward mobility and promotion, you have to have the right type of career experiences, uh, education, um, and continuing you know, step up in in leadership opportunities, and really, that if if that gets cut off, it's like not watering the plant. The plant's going to die, and those folks aren't going to advance up to uh, generals and admirals. I, I think that's what you're telling us, isn't it, uh, Admiral? Yes, exactly. When you when it, uh, Rico, when you say, "Hey, the DoD is not listening." Uh, can you expand on that a little bit uh, on, on what you're seeing and how it's falling maybe on deaf ears? Oh, I'll give you an example because it, it comes from many different angles. You know, DOD is an inc- incredible uh, large organization. But I'll give you an example. The, uh, the Department of the Air Force just recently announced that they have uh, opened up a contract with Hispanic, in, with uh, historic black colleges and universities for a contract worth $60 million over five years. We immediately, the HVLA immediately said, wait a minute, how come only HBCU? Don't you know there, there's 216 capable Hispanic serving institutions in this nation? Why don't you offer the same contract to them? Uh, it took a while, but we got all the way to the chief scientist of the uh, United States Air Force, and we discussed with her what was wrong with with only aiming a $60 million contract at one minority institution. Uh, we, we haven't been successful. They haven't listened to us. So we're starting a, a process of spreading the word. 
and see if we can convince the Department of Defense to change their tune on uh, this particular project of university affiliated research contracts. Well, you have to, uh, there's a lot of work to be done because you have to acknowledge that HPCU or historically black colleges and universities have done a great job of promoting themselves as a group or an entity. Uh, you know, the, the last president gave them a whole lot of money for funding. Uh, there's been a lot of talk on it. Maybe, maybe it's because of voting power. I don't know. Um, in, in that group, but, uh, Will, how do you, how do you promote, uh, better opportunity if people really aren't, uh, aware of? You gotta kinda make them aware of these great, uh, historic, uh, Hispanic, uh, institutions of education. Jim, you are hitting on a very sensitive subject here with me. Um, uh, yeah, I said I was president of ONSO, and I've been associated with ONSO since 2004 and now HVLA. Uh, and, and I will tell you this, uh, that in the past couple decades, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion has been, uh, has been an important issue. And OSD, the Office of Secretary of Defense, have put out policy after policy after policy, but it has no teeth, no funding, no nothing. So what we've had, to, we've been relegated to do, which we've done anyway, is work hand in hand with the services. Now the services have been very open, open-minded about what we've been doing. Uh, and, and speaking for the Navy, they have, and the Coast Guard and Marine Corps, uh, they have been very open with getting engaged with our, our programs, the symposiums that we run. Uh, we have reached out from time to time uh, to private industry. For, uh, for their support. Um, we have even reached to, uh, and Rico can, <laughs> General Ponte can talk more about this, to the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, because the, the, the uh, black, uh, black caucus, black Congressional Caucus, is extremely engaged with ROCS and uh, the Navy, National Navy Officer Association, which is the African American affinity group for the Navy Marine Corps Coast Guard. Uh, and so that's, uh, it's been difficult. It's been difficult, Jim, to, to get people engaged in this effort when they put out policy after policy that does nothing but collect dust on the shelf. Yeah, there's nothing more, nothing more frustrating than that. And, and, it is extremely frustrating. And, and some of it's PR and marketing, and, and that's part of what, uh, I suspect HVLA is looking at is, you know, we've right. got to get that message out in a broader, in a broader sense. Um, and it, you know, it'd be nice if it's you could just skip to the top and uh, DoD leadership would listen, but it may be that you've got to build it from from the ground up. Um, but, you know, I think where the meat is, where the meat is, the proof is in the pudding. When we can we can engage with our uh, Americans of Hispanic descent in our services in mentoring them, you know, and opening doors of opportunity to them that wouldn't otherwise be open. You know, and, and, and getting in them into the job versus the job and providing advocacy for them, giving them visibility. Cause I know, I don't know about General Ponte, but I've sat on nine statutory promotion boards and four admin boards. Very fair. No discrimination. Uh, I'll be darned to, to find very, uh, any Hispanics in those pools that we looked at. But what's, what's happening is that today, uh, performance has become a, a common dis- denominator, 
and we look for those discriminators that make them stand out. And that's what mentoring will help them do, is get them the advocacy and the visibility so that they do bubble to the top. Not because of their last name, not because of the color of their skin, but because of what they do. Well, I, I skipped over it, but I want to focus on it. So before we run out of time, somebody doesn't go, well, you know, they just, it's because of the last name or the, that they want to, to be promoted. Uh, General, that's not the case at all. You said right at the outset, this is about meritocracy. You've got to, you've got to earn it. You, there has to be merit in these promotions. Uh, mm -hmm. am I, am I capturing right your position? Absolutely. Uh, mentoring and meritocracy are the two mo most important parts. But we have to solve the retention issue because how do you, who gets hired by the outside world? The top performers, the higher performers, and we need them to stay in the military. That's why you've seen success in the reserves. Yeah. People in the Air Force, they go to other lucrative jobs, leave the military, and get hired, but they stay in the reserves, and that's where they get promoted. At a time in the early 2000s, there were more Hispanic generals and admirals promoted in the reserves than they were on the active duty. And that trend is getting smaller and smaller and smaller because less and less are getting promoted in both nowadays. Well, that's what we're focusing on. We're trying to make that change, and the change is going to be hard, but we're going to keep on trying. Well, it, you have to keep on trying. It's so important to the country, and quite frankly, a His, Hispanic Americans have long served and fought proudly for this country that they love. So this is, while it's only 18% of the population at the moment, it's an important 18%, and, and making sure everybody has their opportunity is uh, really critical to the American uh, approach to life. Admiral William Rodriguez and General Ricardo Ponte, I appreciate both of you again spending some time with Veterans Radio to talk about what's going on this year. Um, Rico, maybe uh, if you can, give us the, uh, the the website address if people want to know more or if there are officers out there who want to get involved uh, in HVLA. Tell us how they go about doing that. Just uh, go to the website and contact me directly with a login that you can uh, easily get at the website. The website is hvlavets.org. Come, come join us. We need you. And, and uh, Admiral, any final words you'd like to uh, put out here to, to the listening audience? No, I, I think uh, this is an important issue. Um, it, it's, uh, but what uh, Rico said is, is spot on. Uh, please come and join us. It's, it's not because of your last name or, or, or your color of your skin, but it's about us helping you be the best qualified candidate for promotion and command. That's how you bubble to the top. And I want to... I want to encourage veteran radio listeners to go to that website, hvlavets.org, and you can just uh, sign in and join, uh, get their mailing list so that you get updates on uh, Hispanic diver diversity and inclusion issues and what they're doing on a, on a regular basis. So, so if you want to participate, just go get on the mailing list and you'll get uh, information throughout the year. Gentlemen, thanks for spending some time with us today. 
Thank you so much, Jim. I'd love to do this again with you because there's so much we could talk about. There is. <laughs> We've only scratched the, the top, the tip, the very tippy top of the iceberg on this, this issue. Because this is Hispanic Heritage Month, I'd like to talk a little bit about history. In 1915, the West Point graduated about uh, 164 new second lieutenants. They call that, uh, now in history, they call that graduation the uh, the class the stars fell on. And they do that because so many girls were promoted out of that one class. People like Omar Bradley and Dwight D. Eisenhower, two, both of them five-star generals during the war. One little known fact is the first graduate, The 1915 class to get promoted. His name was Luis S. Esteves, the first Puerto Rican cadet ever admitted to the uh, West Point. He made general before any of the other generals of that class were promoted, months before Eisenhower and Bradley, and he retired as a two-star general during the war. We, on this Hispanic Heritage Month, Commend the work that Luis Estevez did back in the early part of this of the last century. Thank you. Certainly, part of our goal here at Veterans Radio is to bring you these kinds of stories about great Americans and great veterans, uh, give you some uh, history maybe that you didn't know about, but give you a new perspective as well. So, after a few words from our sponsors, we're going to talk about. Uh, Michigan veterans who are being inducted in, into the Hall of Honor uh, because of their military service. Stick around. Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative. Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. We can all help someone going through a difficult time. Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. I also want to uh, thank everybody who participated in Veterans Radio's first fundraiser known as Radio on the River. Uh, it was held two weeks ago. We had a blast. The weather wasn't great, but the company was fantastic. We had great uh, veteran storytellers telling their story. Uh, we had support from organizations like Aero Strategies and Legal Help for Veterans. And we had folks who just sent $50 along and said, hey, I can't be there, but I want to support Veterans Radio. So you can still do that by going to veteransradio.net and clicking on the banner and continuing to support this program. Now let's hear about some Michigan veterans. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio um, Paul J. Ryan, who's going to talk about the upcoming Michigan Military and Veterans Hall of Honor induction ceremony for 2022. Paul, welcome back to Veterans Radio. Hello, Jim. How are you? I'm doing well. We had you on last year to talk about last year's classes, and Paul Ryan is a retired uh, United States Navy captain, and he's the vice chair of the 
uh, board for the Michigan Military and, a Hall of, and Veterans Hall of Honor. Um, so he's a busy, busy guy, and he's uh, taken on the lead here uh, to induct uh, a whole new class of great Michiganders into the hall this November. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Michigan Military and Veterans Hall of Honor, and we'll start there. Uh, sure, Jim. Uh, the, the Michigan Military and Veterans Hall of Honor, we'll, we'll keep it short to Hall of Honor, uh, has only been around for a few years. Uh, our purpose is to uh, not only recognize Michiganders for either their uh, military exploits or civilian achievements, uh, civic, business, uh, professional, education, nonprofit uh, accomplishments after they took the uniform off. Uh, every year, our goal is to select six individuals in each category. Uh, the military category is uh, 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 reserved for those individuals whose military accomplishments and exploits, uh, bravery, what have you, uh, uh, are worthy of recognition. And if I understand it right, Paul, uh, these folks can be nominated by the public. They're nominated by members of the board. They may be a VSO or somebody has nominated. Maybe a family friend has nominated. So it's really a wide open process, isn't it? Oh, yes. And uh, uh, the, uh, the, the nomination documents and the information for members of the public to nominate uh, individuals uh, for this honor are on the Hall of Honors website. Uh, and even though we're fairly new at this, uh, last year we inducted our uh, first uh, member of the public, uh, was in the military category, uh, nominated by his spouse. But uh, it's, it's obvious to me that the number of nominees that we are receiving from members of the public has grown. Well, and as you say, they can participate each year in the spring by nominating people. The website, by the way, is mimilitaryvethallofhonor.org. And you can go there and find the bios of everybody who's been inducted in 2019, 2020, 2021. And we're going to talk about the 2022 inductees in a minute here. Paul, this is a uh, this takes a lot of time and effort to go through the various um, nominees. And having done it with the board a number of years, every time I say, "Well, all these people are incredible," but we're just going to talk about uh, a couple, three in each category that are going in in 2022. So I'd like you to begin with the military category and. Talk about um, those folks who are being inducted, and then go ahead and we'll start talking about uh, one of them in particular. Yeah, we uh, Jim, we have some really great uh, nominees in both categories uh, this year. Uh, the individuals who have been uh, slated for induction this year in the military category are uh, Clement Van Wagner, uh, Alita uh, Olida Jure Christides, uh, Virgil Nishimura Westdale, Cliff, Clifford Worthy, Joseph Anderson, and Thomas Pluis. 
Well, each of these are worth a, uh, the full story, but we're not going to have time for that. So I've asked uh, Paul Ryan to um, focus in on half of that military category. So maybe the place to start, because it's nice to see that there's a, a, a variety of uh, uh, men, women, different uh, different uh, ranks, different uh, branches of service. I think that's a goal of the Hall of Honor Board is to make sure that that diversity is recognized. So let, let's talk about Olita Christidis, um, uh, a woman who's going into the hall here. Yeah, uh, a very interesting, fascinating story here, Jim. And uh, starting out in discussing Alita is is uh, a, a great idea because the uh, the, the uh, one of the themes in uh, Hall of Honor inductions is recognizing individuals who have overcome obstacles and faced adversity. And Alita is one of those individuals. She was born in 1897 in Marine City, south of St. Clair. Uh, she served as a telephone operator uh, during World War One with the U.S. Army Signal Corps. Uh, World War One, of course, was known for a, a lot of uh, technological improvements or changes in warfare, uh, tanks, airplanes, machine guns, and the telephone. Uh, when uh, General Pershing, who commanded the American Expeditionary Forces in Europe, got over there, he realized that uh, there was a need for fast and efficient communication between uh, command headquarters and uh, the frontline units. And telephones were uh, the, the, the way to do that. Problem was that the Army didn't have very many or any uh, telephone operators at the time, and certainly none in Europe. And so the call went out back in the States uh, for telephone operators who at that time were overwhelmingly female uh, to join the Army and become telephone operators. Uh, Alita, at age 19, who was then working for Marine City Bell Telephone as their chief operator and trainer, signed up. Uh, she and many of her counterparts throughout the country uh, then became known as the Hello Girls Brigade, in the U.S. Army Signal Corps, uh, they went to uh, went to Europe. Uh, Alita and about thirty of her uh, counterparts, uh, other operators, served in uh, General Pershing's headquarters in France. Uh, those female uh, soldiers uh, had uh, the same duties and the same responsibilities that any other soldier in the Army Signal Corps had. Well, one of the things that's interesting, Paul, is that we don't think about it today, but because communication is so instant, but for General Pershing, who's in France fighting with the French against the Germans, he has to be able to communicate, and there's communication going on in French that's key to the, the various tactics. So these women also had to be fluent in handling and obviously discreet, handling uh, calls between both, you know, generals and officers on the English side, but also on the French side. Yes, and, and Alita was actually one of the lead uh, operators in handling what was known as the French switchboard because she was fluent in French at the time. And remember, this is a girl who was only 19 years old at the time. 
it's it's amazing um again you have to think back to what technology is you know the telephone was technology not cell phones telephones and uh these switchboard operators um and alita in particular they were close to the front this isn't a uh, you know sit back in paris kind of job is it uh, nothing could be further from the truth uh, General Pershing's headquarters was in Chaumont, France, and uh, that was a uh, frequent target of the Germans. Uh, just like in any war, uh, you want to take out the headquarters and the generals because once you do that, uh, you, uh, you create mass confusion in the ranks. And so not only did uh, Alita and her fellow Hello Girl uh, uh, girl uh, switchboard operators uh, had to uh, be uh, very precise in their technical execution of telephone calls. To, uh, for us today, we you know we take that for granted, but back then, telephone was more or less cutting edge technology. So they had to be very careful about that, while occasionally do- dodging uh, the occasional German artillery round. And, uh, you know, uh, obeying the, 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 the call to take cover. So a uh, lot of stuff going on with this group of females that was part of the United States Army fighting in France in World War One. And again, for folks to think back in time, these are telephone operators who are taking plugs and moving plug A, putting it in hole B, and then from C down to F. You know, there is, I mean, this is old time uh, telephone operators, and they listened in, as I understand it, to the beginning of the calls to make sure the connections are made. So yeah, discretion it was, was, was automatic. Yeah, they they had to get this right the first time, and that was a big challenge. Well, it wasn't smooth sailing for these women. Uh, it was certainly a, an adventure. Uh, but even as how they got treated on their way out the door from the United States uh, Army Signal Corps. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's uh, that's the part where uh, we talk about uh, the uh, uh, perseverance in the face of adversity for Alita. She uh, comes home in the summer of 2019. The war is over. Uh, she's demobilized. She's out of the Army. And uh, she and all other female members of the Army Signal Corps were issued what was known as a service termination letter uh, instead of receiving an official discharge. Uh, now, keep in mind, Jim, that from the beginning of her enlistment right to her mobilization, she was every bit the U.S. Army Signal Corps soldier with all the same duties and responsibilities that the guys had. But she doesn't get an official discharge because of that, because this this sort of second-class documentation that she and her uh, her sisters received, uh, she she and and all other members of the Hello Girls Brigade were effectively denied any veterans' rights or benefits. Uh, really, an, an an injustice that took decades to correct. Alita and uh, others. Uh, who were uh, Hello Girl Brigade veterans uh, began a letter-writing uh, campaign to um, uh, change those service termination letters into discharges. Alita even joined a local 
American Legion post in Marine City. The American Legion was established in 1919 and was recognized as a legionnaire until the national uh, organization um, forced her, in effect, to resign from the American Legion because she didn't have the right discharge. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really one of those stories, and, and uh, uh, we could spend all our time on her story because it's a lot of women's story. But finally, in 1978, uh, Congress passed, and I guess uh, it was President Carter who signed uh, the bill making the women uh, get to get official certificate of discharge, their DD-214, if you will, and and she died uh, a few years later, six years later, at the age of 87. But it's a heck of a story, and actually it's one that um, has been part of books and movies. One recent uh, novel uh, on this is Switchboard Soldiers, and we're going to talk to the author of that, and there'll be a future podcast on that, uh, because this story of the, these heroic women needs to really be told more. You've got another interesting inductee coming in, uh, Captain Paul Ryan, uh, uh, Clement von Wagner. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, uh, this is a personal opinion on, on my part, Jim, and that opinion is that uh, we uh, in American society use the word hero uh, in describing military people, I think, a little too frequently. And because of that, it tends to be cheapened. But Clement Van Wagner is the real deal. He is was truly uh, a hero, born in 1914 in Alpena. He was drafted into the Army in 1941 and received a commission as an infantry officer. Uh, Clemens served in the European Theater of Operations, or the ETO, during World War II. Uh, he participated in almost every significant campaign in the European Theater, including uh, the invasion of North Africa, which was known as Operation Torch, the invasion of Sicily, uh, known as Operation Husky, and the invasion of Normandy, uh, known as Operation Overlord, uh, landing on D-Day the very first day. Uh, he also participated in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, in uh, each of those uh, engagements, uh, those campaigns, really terrifically hard fighting. Clement personally uh, served over 600 days in combat, uh, with the Army's 1st Infantry Division, uh, known as the Big Red One. <laughs> you got to stop and think about that. Essentially two years uh, yeah, I mean, in look, combat. Look at, look at Vietnam veterans where uh, 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 they were uh, in country for barely a year and uh, uh, even shorter deployments more recently. Yeah, 600 days in combat in the European theater. And and this was serious combat. Tell us about his military awards. Yeah, uh, just a, astounding record of uh, military decorations. Clement received four silver stars. The silver star is our nation's third highest decoration for valor. He received seven bronze stars. He received the Soldier's Medal, which is uh, given for heroism not involving combat. And he received five Purple Hearts, each one for being wounded in action. So being wounded five times, 
four silver stars, seven bronze stars, and the soldier's medal, making Clement uh, one of the most highly decorated Michiganders to serve in World War II. Just an incredible... Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. And these are the kind of men and women who are being inducted to the Michigan Military and Veterans Hall of Honor on November 18th, 2022 in Lansing. Uh, Clement retired uh, uh, and and came back to Michigan after World War Two uh, became be, got involved with uh, reestablishing and, and commanding the Army National Guard a unit in Alpena. Um, retired as a lieutenant colonel and uh, passed away in 2007, I believe, at uh, the age of 93. Just an incredible Clement von Wagner is a absolute uh, uh, incredible person to be inducted into the hall. It yeah, doesn't, and, it doesn't diminish it anybody else. <laughs> that uh, the VA Medical Center in Alpena is named in his honor. Uh, a very fitting tribute for a true hero. Yeah, and, and all of these people are sing, uh, similarly distinguished. Uh, one is Virgil uh, Westdale. Tell us his story. Uh, Virgil is a, a, a fascinating story. Uh, he was born in 1918 in Indiana. His father was Japanese and his mother was American. Uh, Virgil's father emigrated from Japan in 1906, uh, eventually moving from the west coast of Indiana, began farming. Uh, Virgil himself uh, and, and his siblings uh, became what would later be called Nisei, second-generation Japanese-Americans. Uh, that word comes from the Japanese word ni, which means two. Uh, when Virgil was nine, his family moved to Michigan, uh, to White Pigeon, halfway between Constantine and the Indiana line. Uh, Virgil went to Western Michigan University and uh, obtained his private pilot's license in 1942 through a government-subsidized flight training program, graduating at the top of his class. He eventually uh, was uh, inducted into the uh, Army Air Corps Reserve as an instrument flight instructor, which was a senior non-commissioned officer position at uh, what was known as Romulus Field in Detroit. Uh, He completed the Army Air Corps instrument and commercial flight training programs simultaneously, finishing at the top of his class in both programs. Uh, For several months in 1943, he was an instructor pilot for the U.S. Army Air Corps believed to be the only Nisei soldier to serve in such a role during World War II. Then, uh, later in the year, uh, that in 1943, he was demoted to private and reassigned to the active Army. Remember, he was in the Army Reserve with a unit of the uh, 442nd Regimental Combat Team. Uh, this demotion and reassignment was likely the result of Executive Order 9066, which was signed by President Roosevelt in 1942, declaring that all individuals with at least one-sixteenth Japanese ancestry were to be designated as enemy aliens, regardless of their citizenship. And remember, Virgil was born in the United States, so he was an American citizen already, but uh, that executive order, which really mistreated Many uh, Nisei Japanese Americans throughout the country affected him in that way. Yeah, Virgil's story after uh, 
uh, after he left the army after World War II is one of just astounding accomplishment, as as you uh, you mentioned here, Jim. And I'll tell you that uh, the Hall of Honor board had uh, a, a little bit of a tough time determining which category to induct Virgil in, uh, because he's got accomplishments that are very strong on both sides of the coin, both uh, military and civilian. Uh, in the end, uh, because of uh, Virgil's perseverance through that really shameful behavior by the Army when uh, he was uh, uh, his pilot's license was revoked and he was demoted and sent to the infantry, uh, another great example of, of perseverance. Uh, I actually met Virgil on a couple of occasions. Uh, he unfortunately passed away in February this year at age 104. Well, an inspiring life, and uh, that's why the Hall of Honor is bringing these uh, men and women forward to inspire others. While the three we talked about are deceased, uh, you have uh, additional inductees who are uh, present, and uh, some will be at the Hall of Honor ceremony, or their family representatives will be. So it's a nice program. It takes a uh, um, you know, an hour and a half sort of thing up in Lansing, and, and is the public invited? Oh yes, most definitely. The the public is invited. There is uh, uh, there's no charge. It's free to attend, and uh, we encourage as many people as possible uh, to come to the Michigan History Center in Lansing on Friday, November eighteenth, uh, to hear these stories, and uh, in in some cases. Uh, to interact directly with the honoree. Uh, you know, we, as you mentioned, we have a number of them who are still with us and, uh, and will be there. Thanks to Paul Ryan to talk to us about the upcoming Hall of Honor inductee for veterans and military members from Michigan. That ceremony is going to take place on November 18th, 2022 up in Lansing. You can go to the website, uh, org to get the details and come on up and uh, meet everybody and enjoy. Uh, you get to read the bios all on the website, so it's uh, really uh, qu- quite the place you should be going to and uh, learning more about these great uh, Michigan military and veteran uh, honorees. Well, again, I want to thank everybody for uh, who did participate in the radio on the river we had a great time the weather was a little iffy but uh we had great company we had folks there from uh oh boy uh certainly vietnam forward all the all the campaigns uh, so that was a good thing and uh, we look forward to doing it again next year you can go to veteransradio.net and click on the button and help support it by making a donation. A lot of people did, and we'd ask for more continued support. We always appreciate the support we get from nvbdc.org, uh, which is a certification of disabled and veteran-owned businesses, the support from folks like the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettle Chapter, VFW, Graf O'Hara, Post 423, and the American Legion, Preston, Post 46 in Ann Arbor as well. So uh, keep us going strong as we go into our 19th year here at Veterans Radio. Dale and I were energized by being with so many friends 
at Radio on the River at uh, Dr. Eric Fretz's house. Um, a fantastic setting. You, you, it was it was great. It was worth the price of admission. But uh, we'll do it again next year, I suspect. And we'll be back, as always, next week to bring you another interesting set of interviews and talks with veterans, um, stuff that you really can't hear anywhere else on the radio dial or on TV or cable. So we think we bring you something unique, and it's uh, valuable to you, and it's a, certainly a passion project for us. I'm Jim Fossone with Legal Help for Veterans, a veterans disability lawyer, and proud to be the co-host here on Veterans Radio with Dale Throneberry, who's been doing it, as I say, for 19 years. So, as always, we want to end this uh, broadcast by thanking you, thanking our sponsors, and telling you that until next time on Veterans Radio, you are dismissed. <laughs>